welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. I'm your host, Claudia, and this week's episode, I did say that I was going to be covering classical executions, but after doing the research, I realised I'm a bit naive about how much is actually in this subject, and I've decided that this episode today is actually going to be on ancient executions. Next episode will be about pre-19th century executions and the episode after that will be post-19th century and then the final episode in this series so the fourth episode will be a bit of a psychological dive on why humans seem to have a certain fascination with execution or anything morbid like, why did people used to go to public hangings? Like, what was the point of that? Anyway, we're going to have a dive into this. So, we're going to go into four different ancient civilizations. I suppose I just want to preface this because, of course, I can't cover every ancient civilization, but I'm covering the ones that have the most information. Sorry, it has actually been a week later since I should have released this episode, but I didn't actually realise how much was actually out there. And being a busy mum, it sort of caught me off guard and, well, hopefully I will learn from this lesson. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. So the first ancient civilization that we're going to cover is ancient Egypt. I have a very big passion for ancient Egypt. It was, in fact, my 18th birthday present. Myself, my mum and my dad went on a cruise down the Nile. And because, of course, my birthday is in August, we went in August, which is possibly the worst time to go since it was 50 degree heat. But it was the best time to go in the way that not many English-speaking people actually go at this time of year. So we actually had one tour guide between the three of us and one other English-speaking lady on the ship. So it was like a personalised tour. It was brilliant. I would love to go back there again someday. But yeah, it's just something that I do have a passion for. So talking about executions, Mark Milmore wrote in discoveringegypt.com, during the old and middle kingdoms, order was kept by local officials with their own private police forces. But during the new kingdom, a more centralized police force developed, made up of primarily Egypt's Nubian allies in the Majay. Nubia is just by the Aswan River, at the bottom of the Nile, just to give you a little bit of perspective of where this is. The police were armed with staffs and used dogs, and neither the rich nor poor citizens were above the law, and punishments ranged from confiscation of property, beating and mutilation, including the cutting off of ears and noses, to death without a proper burial. The Egyptians believed that a proper burial was essential for entering the afterlife, so the threat of this last punishment 
was a very real deterrent. Mule Stein of Brigham Young University wrote, it appears that death for stealing or damaging state property was also fairly uniform. Though it is difficult to assess this with the confidence since we only have evidence from a few time periods such as the New Kingdom and the Third Intermediate Period. Similarly, one would assume that the execution for murder would have been invariable, but we only have the evidence for murder from the Third Intermediate Period forward. Desecration of sacred land could be grounds for execution and runaway slaves could be deemed worthy of death. Desecration of royal tombs was viewed as a capital offence. Although death was sometimes the punishment decreed for interference with mortuary cults, rendering false rulings, rendering false oracles, non-royal tomb desecration, interfering with temple cults, embezzling cultic proceeds, um, diverting convalibur, issuing false documents or stealing state property. So there's actually a lot of things that was decreed in Egypt. It sounds like pretty much like a modern day society. In some decrees, these acts were deemed worthy of death and in others they are given lighter, though still violent and harsh punishments. Just to give an example, in Seti I's Nuri decree, he stipulates various beatings, woundings, and restitutions for embezzling and reselling temple estate goods. Yet, if these crimes were committed by the keeper of hounds or a keeper of cattle, they were to be impaled. The inconsistency of punishments in the decree is quite hard to explain. The most famous cases of sanctioned violence stem from the text recording the trial of the harem conspirators under Ramses III. And those recordings of the trials of those involved in tomb robbery in the late 20th dynasty. In both cases, those directly responsible for the crimes met death. In the harem conspiracy, almost all of those who were merely aware of the conspiracy were put to death or are allowed to commit suicide. Despite the arguments of many scholars, there is no apparent pattern to explain why some individuals were put to death while others were permitted to commit suicide. Numerous texts indicate that capital punishment for unspecified criminal activity was ongoing practice that continued throughout the Egyptian history. Mentions of this are found in graffiti, which speak of desecrators, flesh burning together with the criminals, or being cooked with the criminals. A coffin text, descendant of the spell from the pyramid texts, often termed the cannibal hymn, also mentions the burning of criminals. The transformation of the cannibal hymn into this coffin text suggests that it is based to some degree on a continuing reality. For the text seems to have preserved the idea of its original pyramid text form, yet contains within its elements which appear to have incorporated dynamic changes to the event it describes. The dynamic elements indicate that at a time the coffin text was created, 
some evolved form of a practice continued. It can't be determined if the crimes referred to in this type of reference are those noted above or if they refer to a specific type of crime in addition to those listed above that was deemed worthy of death. Some have argued that killing was sanctioned in the case of a cuckolded husband in regards to the man with whom his wife had slept. The arguments are, for this are speculative and the evidence is really inconclusive. Mosenstein of Brigham University also wrote that while beatings, open wounds and mutilization were difficult and severe punishments, execution was one of the most extreme violence of the penalized repertoire. The reasons for and the types of execution varied over time, but sanctioned violent death remained an invariable part of Egyptian society. Death by burning was a consistent type of violence employed throughout the Egyptian history though the evidence for it's increased sharply after the end of Ramsey's side period. Decapitation was one of the more frequent tools of death in early Egyptian history, but it appears to have declined from the Ramsey-side era on. Slaying in a ritual text, i.e. the sanctioned killing that involves demonstrative ritual trappings, was consistently employed over time and drowning was also sometimes employed. Impalement was infrequently used except during the Ramsey side era when it seems to have been the preferred form of punishment. While in many cases we know that either the king or visor approved of executions, we do not have enough evidence to know if this was always the case. We are also unable to determine why some methods of killing were preferred vis-a-vis other in various time periods. Similar to the methods of execution, the reasons for execution also demonstrate both consistency and change over time. While it is difficult to detect a consistent pattern, one small repetitive theme is that the distribution of cult could often result in ritualization execution. Other than this, our sources are generally silent as to why capital punishment was deemed necessary. A notable exception being in the harem conspiracy, wherein those being executed understood that it was because they had committed the abomination of every god and every goddess. Yet the general, and I'm sure it's simplified, pattern indicates that capital punishment was usually a result of crimes which were deemed to be against the state or the gods. These type of crimes were viewed as disruptive of order or inviting chaos. These acts were typically, though not uniformly, painted as some sort of rebellion, such as many tomb inscriptions that labeled anyone who violated the tomb as a rebel. On the part of the state, violence was employed in the service of order it was designed to rectify unacceptable situations, or in other words, to return the order of the original creative state. Execution for the rebellious was a constant.
let's visit ancient China. Why this particular ancient civilization draws the interest from me is because they discovered so many things so early on in their civilization that other civilizations didn't discover till all years, centuries later. I think as a people, they are so intelligent and they are so dedicated and hardworking. And you can see that in all in general and everything that they do. So for me, having execution and capital punishment during the time were, I think that they were so progressive. To me, it's something that I find I don't know, it just doesn't seem to match. As you can probably tell, I am against capital punishment. I don't believe that the killing of, well, I suppose I can explain it like this. If we executed the people who we sent to prison for life, there's lots of people who have been exonerated now. And I just don't think that death of that one innocent life is worth the death of all the people who should be or have been given capital punishment since. Maybe this is just coming from the viewpoint of someone who has only ever lived in countries where we don't have capital punishment. But I do think as well that prisons are actually too soft. Anyway, I'm going to be covering 17 ways of execution in ancient China. So the first one is skin slicing, or I'm going to give my best pronunciation, or bopi. This means slicing and cutting away the skin of a person until that person dies. When slicing the skin, one starts off from the back spine and cut the skin into half, slowly separating the skin away from the muscle. After slicing the skin, the skins were hanged outside the judicial court as a deterrent warning. In earlier times, skin slicing was done after a person died. But in later times, it developed into live skin slicing. Imagine having your skin pulled apart of the muscle. Oh, I couldn't think of anything worse. Waist tearing or chopping, yao zan. This involves cutting a person's body into half, the top and bottom, by chopping at the waist. Because most of the organs are in the top part, the prisoner would not die immediately. After chopping, one would have to wait some time before the executed dies. So to give an example of this, Emperor Yongle of the Ming Dynasty was said to execute Fang Zirong using waist chopping. It was said that after the chopping, Fang still crawled around on the ground, using the blood on his hand to write the word usurp throne 12 times before dying. Chariot tearing, or shi lai. 
also known as the five horses tearing the body. They would simply tie each rope onto the head, two hands and two legs of the prisoner, then connect the five ropes to five horses or chariots respectively and allow the five horses to gallop away in five different directions and thereby tearing a person's body into six parts. This was famously legalized by Lord Shenyang and many people were executed by this method during warring states. Chopping away the hands and legs takes less effort. But tearing them apart, one can feel the great pain that would undergo by the executed during this tearing. However, you might think that this might actually be the most painless since decapitation causes what most people think it causes, instantaneous death. This one is very similar to the chariot tearing, the five cutting, zhu ying. This means cutting away the head, feet, hands, ears, as well as gouging out the eyes. This is normally only after a person is killed that one would cut away the heads, hands and feet. During the Western Han Dynasty after Lingu Bang's death, Empress Lu arrested his concubines and executed them by cutting away the heads, legs, feet and gorged out their eyes and threw them into a pig's pen to feed the pigs. Mincing, Lingxi, the death of a thousand cuts. The earliest practice was to cut and mince a person's body into a body mince after a person was killed. Later, it developed into live mincing. During the execution, the executioner would slice many cuts onto the body till the person dies. It was said that there were two executioners executing the person. One has to slice from the leg a thousand times, which means cutting away 1,000 pieces of flesh till the person died. According to the Ming history, the execution of the eunuch Lu Jing took some three days before he died. And this was one of the execution punishments that he would have gone through. And this was a very popular execution punishment during the Ming and Qing dynasty. The next few are quite self-explanatory, so I will move through these a little bit faster. So there's boiling, which is pengzu, and this involves putting the prisoner in a big pot. The big pot is filled with water and placed onto a stack of wood or charcoal to burn and heat up the pot. The water boils and heats up, and the prisoner is boiled to death. There's castration, involve cutting away the sexual organ of a man and allowing one to bleed to death. It's Guangxing. Cutting away the legs, Yu Ying. This involves cutting away the legs. Needling, Sha Zheng. Using a needle to poke and pierce the fingers. Now that one sounds horrific. Now the next one is possibly my worst fear. Live burial. 
Kwa Mai. This was used mostly during war times and prisoners were buried in the ground until they died because they just couldn't breathe, there was no oxygen. During wartime, prisoners of war were asked to dig the ground and actually to dig their own graves and then they were pushed into the ground and then buried. I cannot think of anything worse. If anyone has seen Kill Bill and seen her buried in there, that gives me a slight panic attack every single time I watch that. Poisoning, Xiandu. The prisoner has to drink the poisonous wine and die. There's impaling, gungzing. This involves using the stuff and to pierce it through one's mouth or anus. Halfway through the piercing, the intestines would be broken and that would in turn make the prisoner die. Soaring, juji. Basically, they would be sawn in all different ways until the person dies. Breaking the vertebrae, duanzu. This involves obviously breaking the vertebrae in a person's back and once all the vertebrae is broken, leaving the person to die. A lead injection, guan quang. They would melt the lead to 232 degrees Celsius, then pour the lead into a person's mouth. And once the lead reached the stomach, it would solidify and expand. And because of this heavy metal exerted a strong downward force on the body, the person would die immediately. And the last one, combing and brushing, zhu zing. This is not the combing of hair, but a cruel execution. This involves using a metal brush with sharp pieces to comb onto the body. As it combs, several pieces of flesh would be teared out. This was said to be the execution that was invented by Zhuanghang, the first emperor of the Ming dynasty. Next, let us visit ancient Greece. I will begin with a simple list of the penalties imposed in Athens. Say a few words about the most interesting penalties, then draw some brief conclusions about their symbolic weight. On fellow citizens, the Athenians imposed fines, imprisonment, and a set time of public humiliation in the stocks, a limited loss of political rights, total disenfranchisement, exile from the city, which could be amplified with the confiscation of property or the raising of the convict's house, and death. Women could not, of course, be subject to the loss of political rights, but they could lose their right to participate in religious spaces or events. On the resident foreigners in their midst, 
the Athenians imposed all of the above penalties with the exemption of disenfranchisism. As for slaves, they fined masters and executed slaves and also imposed whippings and beatings. They also seem to have imprisoned slaves in mill houses on a regular basis. So just to have a little look, I'm mainly, even though I'm talking about ancient Greece, I'm mainly going to talk about the Athenians because that was one of the main cities during ancient Greece was Athens as it was the hub, like we would think of Rome being in Italy. In respect to their punishment of citizens, the Athenians have often been thought as lenient. Socrates' execution by hemlock has seemed to sound like a humane prosecure. I can't actually speak today. A humane foresight of the lethal injection, shall we say. In fact, the standard means of execution was not poison, but a form of bloodless crucifixion, which the convict was fastened to a board with iron collars around the wrists, ankles, and neck, and the collar around the neck was tightened to strangle the wrongdoer. Socrates, too, would have probably have suffered such crucifixion if he didn't have wealthy friends. From the end of the 5th century, the Athenians seemed to have been willing to let wrongdoers convicted to death use hemlock to commit suicide in advance of their execution, provided they could afford to pay for the dose. It was quite expensive. It was 12 denarii, a dose, at the end of the 4th century. And no doubt because it was only grown in cold, shady, distant spots like Susa in the Asia Minor and Crete. Yet, even if the bloodless crucifixion was non-lenient, it did have an element of moderation. Generals on the battlefield had the authority to execute citizens and this they did with a swift blow of the sword. The purpose of the unusual crucifixion and its elaborate effort to avoid blood seems to have been to distinguish judicial punishments and penalties in the peaceful city from the violence of the battlefield. On some level, the bloodless crucifixion protected the body of the citizen from abuse even in death. In contrast, the Athenians were indeed lenient in their willingness to let convicts on death row escape prison and flee into exile. Even convicted murderers who were being held in prison while they awaited execution were expected to make a jailbreak and flee the land. And the expectation that the wrongdoer would simply take themselves into exile was such that a defiant defendant in a murder trial was given the chance after his first speech in the trial to leave the country if he wanted. However, exile wasn't the easiest burden to bear, for exile might become a beggar in a strange land and an old man without a city. But exiles could also re-establish themselves in another city and even in some cases gain citizenship in their new homes. An Athenian preference for exile over execution is the best evidence of their desire to use punishment to cure all parties of the wrongdoing. In departing the community, the wrongdoer freed the victim and the prosecution of prosecutor of the anger and put an end to the social disruption plaguing the city, but also gained himself the chance to start a new life 
in a context where he would not be the focus of anger and social conflict. Peace in the community was restored and the wrongdoer was also restored to life. The single greatest difference between ancient and modern penalties then is the prominence of the exile in the former context of imprisonment in the latter. The Athenians did use imprisonment as a penalty, but this developed out of the custom of imprisoning wrongdoers who were unable to pay their fines. Impoverished Athenians who could not pay their fines ended up imprisoned for indefinite periods of time. And over time, the city seems to have developed the means where such citizens could propose set time limits for their imprisonment to replace their fines. But imprisonment was never one of the penalties mandated by law. Indeed, the modern rise of imprisonment as the basic sentence mandated by law coincides neatly with the near total disappearance of the exile in the 19th century. Exile was still used in colonial America, and of course, modern Australia has its roots in serving the penal colony for Britain. Please see episode three and four for that. But the modern prison now serves as a function formerly served by exile. It allows the community to forget almost entirely about a particular wrongdoers, and so restores a sense of order to the community. Yet in the transition from a world that relied heavily on exile to one that relies most of all on incarceration, something valuable has been lost. Although prisons may help communities to forget about particular wrongdoers who disappear into them, they haven't really achieved the the second function of exile, which was to restore the wrongdoers also, allowing them to enter a new community in context which they would have a new chance at life. Then again, I don't totally agree that a wrongdoer should have the opportunity to have a new chance at life. Some people just cannot be rehabilitated. For all this emphasis on the Athenian use of penalties like exile, that allowed them to forget all the wrongdoer, all about the wrongdoer, it is important to remember that in other cases, the Athenians preferred to memorialize punishments for eternity. As we see, the procedure of the graphe and the inscription that it would follow were especially used for memorialization. The Athenians thus developed techniques for punishment that drew on the capacities of the community's memory and others that draw on its ability to forget. In general, it placed heavy emphasis on memorializing punishments in those contexts where the wrongdoing has had an especially political significance, for example, treason, robbery of temples. In contrast, when the wrongdoing was primarily concerned to particular individuals and their personal conflicts, the city was willing to let it go. Lastly, I wanted to cover ancient India. I really wanted to bring in this ancient civilization in as well to cover a lot 
of the population or give not just Athenians, Romans, ancient Britain. I actually wanted to give a completely different perspective. However, there's not really a lot of information surrounding the type of punishments in ancient India. But what I could find was equally as shocking. In the book, The Wonder That Was India by A.L. Basham, I came across a passage on the death penalty. If you are looking for a book to read about ancient Indian history, this is just fantastic. The death penalty is laid down in many forms and for many crimes. Unlike the early sutras of Arthastra, prescribes for its murder, even as a result of a duel or quarrel, if the injured man dies within several days. Hanging is a penalty for spreading false rumours, housebreaking and stealing the king's elephants and horses. Those who plot against the king, force entry into the king's harem, aid his enemies, create dissatisfaction in the army, murder their father, mother, son, brother, or ascetic, or commit serious arson, are to be burnt alive. Beheading is the penalty laid down by the Arsistra for willful murder or stealing of herd cattle. The man who deliberately breaks a dam is to be drowned in the same dam. Women murdering their husbands or children, killing others by poison or committing arson are to be torn apart by oxen. Just to break in here at the moment, the if you can see, there's a lot of similarities to the Chinese executions and even to the Egyptian. So you can see how different civilizations could pull from different ideas that they have possibly heard or seen in times of battle, war, or people traveling. Civilians stealing military supplies are to be shot to death with arrows. These are some of the many forms of execution suggested by the Arthastra. This text is comparatively lenient towards sexual crimes. But the Manu also prescribes death in various unpleasant forms for most types of adultery and sexual assault. Even the benevolent Aloka, for all his distaste of taking off life, did not abolish the death penalty, the usual form of execution, little mentioned in the textbooks on law, but often referred to in general literature, was impalement. Nevertheless, it is evident that some opinion definitely opposed the death penalty. And the question is considered from both sides in the remarkable passage in the Mahabharata. Here the argument against capital punishment and heavy penalties is in general not 
in general is not based, as might be expected, on the doctrine of nonviolence, which in no way forbade either capital punishment or war, but rests wholly on their humanitarian considerations. In most cases of mutilation, long imprisonment and their execution result in untold suffering for many innocent people, especially the wife and the family of the criminal. The argument is quickly refuted. In this dark age, the innocent must suffer with the guilty in order that the society in general must be protected and anarchy avoided and men enabled to pursue the sacred law in peace. The law books vary in their attitude to adulterous wives. Generally, if she had willful intercourse with a man of base, her lot was hard. Manu and some other sources even lay down that she should be torn apart by dogs. As you can see that with ancient India, there is a lot of similarities to most of the ancient executions that we've mentioned today. I would mainly say that the Athenian one has actually been where you can see them most leniency. But um, they all seem to be very violent and very shocking. So I understand that this is just a brief history of the different executions in the ancient world and I have only covered four civilizations. Also I know that the ancient China one was a lot less detailed than the ancient Egypt and the Athenian. A lot of it is just the amount of information that is actually accessible. So I hope this has given you um, a bit of an outline about how ancient times they, and in the different civilizations, they actually use the execution methods. So as I said, I will be moving on to pre-19th century executions, which one of the most fascinating ones to me is the guillotine in France. I don't know why it's always drawn to me. Anyway, so today's sources, I used um, Carrie Mullerstein from Brigham University in 2015, the UCLA Encyclopedia of Egyptology on eScholarship.com. I also used www.chinahistoryforum.com. Also used Punishment in Ancient Athens by Danielle Allen, the edition of the 23rd of March 2003, Classical Athenian Democracy. And also the book of The Wonder That Was India by A.L. Basham. I highly recommend that book. So thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content. Please join our Facebook group, Macabre for Mortals podcast. Or if you have any stories or anything that you would like me to cover, then please email them to macabreformortals at gmail.com. As I said, next episode, I will be covering those pre-19th century executions. See you next time.